Escape Pod, 383. February 14, 2013. The First Book of Flaccid Swords. By Edward Cowan. Welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. Happy Valentine's Day. We've got an appropriately themed story for you this week, dealing with something every couple needs in order to build a healthy relationship. Empathy. We bring you The First Book of Flaccid Swords by Edward Cowan. Edward's a novelist and short story writer whose works explore those sometimes agonizing, sometimes humorous, but always excruciatingly uncomfortable moments that people experience when confronted by their true selves. For more information about Edward and his writing, please visit www.edwardcowan.com. The story is read to you by Bruce Busby, a voice actor who's appeared in Darker Projects, Broken Sea Audio, Pendant Audio, and others. So hold hands, sit back, and really listen to your partner, because it's story time. The First Book of Flaccid Swords by Edward Cowan It was a snake, and gods what a snake it was! Fifty feet from sweeping tail to flicking tongue, its eyes as cold as deepest space and dim as the farthest star, its fangs dripping poison so vile the stench alone would kill a lesser man. This, then, was the dreaded doom of Lahathra, into whose black maw the unlucky and damned were fed to the impotent god. Never having counted myself among his faithful, I saw no reason to submit meekly to his wrath. His priests had made one crushing mistake when they lured me onto the trap-door. They failed to relieve me of my blade. Wind, they called it, those for whom that name was the last word to leave their lips." I rushed the foul altar, upon which lay my Dorinda, black chains coiling about her supple form, her body purest alabaster against the crimson stone marbling her flesh. Suthu Kalai, highest of the wretched priests, cackled as I approached, throwing the lever that opened the trap. Dorinda's scream followed me down the endless serpentine flue. Beyond that, darkness. Rolling to my feet, I stood in the shaft of light piercing the abyss from the chamber above, wind held before me, daring the almost tangible shadow to draw near. Within moments came a rasping omen, as of a great mass dragging itself awake after a slumber of eons. We goaded one another to strike, it with the insolence of the predator that has never known failure, I with a rage that would never be quenched till the serpent's blood coated my blade from point to pommel. From above echoed the laughter of the priests and the muffled screams of my darinda, here there was only silence, the sweet anticipation of the moment before death. Finally I saluted the beast with a nod and spoke. At least your masters have granted me a worthy adversary. Very well, let us have at it. I will not pretend to the ancient patience of the serpent folk. At that I lunged. Its mammoth head darted forward quicker than mercury, but primal speed avails not against human cunning. I ducked its strike and gripped my blade for the piercing jab, up under the jaw and through the skull. I sprang up, mighty thews tensing for the killing blow, and found myself holding a wet noodle? Static shrieks as Jessica tears off her headgear and hurls it to the floor. Test pattern jackhammers my eyes and ears. 
That's the thing about couples therapy. When one quits, she drags the other with her. And you can't do it unless you do it together. Repeat ad nauseum, and there, you've got a bead on the entire experience. She glares at me from her couch. You died again, didn't you? Clearing his throat, Dr. Freundlich removes his own headgear with none of his patient's violent frustration. He regards us across the vast mahogany plane of his desk, steepling his fingertips, tap-tap-tapping them together. We are not making the progress we had hoped for, hmm? Jessica and I shift on our couches, the same vivid red as the La Hathra altar, searching for comfort or at least a spot of dignity in what she calls the birthing position. Feet level with head, ankles parted. This posture is designed for optimal relaxation, says the doctor. I say it's designed to keep us permanently at bay. From these positions, we gaze up at him as children to father. Jessica shushes me when I mutter things like that, but the doctor doesn't disagree. It is, in fact, necessary. In the realm of the new psychology, patients no longer want friends or confidants. In these times of broken homes, late marriage, and early divorce, they desire discipline, order, fathers. That would be vatas coming from him. It seems we, the therapeutized masses, have been conditioned by decades of pre-programmed cliché, also expect our therapists to speak in guttural Teutonic lisps, or so Dr. Freundlich says. God, Joe, Jessica snaps, rubbing the red welts left on her wrists by restraints designed to protect us from injuring ourselves while in virtuo, so the doctor says, but really, I think, to reinforce our submission to the treatment. She rakes goosebumps from her arms. I can feel all that, you know, the chains, the freezing altar. How do you think it feels to fight a dozen hyena men and then be dumped down a forty-foot shaft, I retort? Well, at least you weren't naked. Some of the heat leaves her with that. She can't maintain her volcanic fury when she looks so great in my immersions. And when you die, I die too, she adds petulantly. I'm going to have to start seeing a psychiatrist to deal with the nightmares I get from couples therapy. Altars, chains, tentacles, oozing proboscises, and Dorinda? What kind of a name is that? Children, the doctor chides. The shouting, it accomplishes nothing. I couldn't agree more. Well, I... Jessica is somewhat correct, though, he nods, the sharp symmetry of his bald scalp barely disrupted by ears and nose and lips. Throw in gleaming red eyes, pointed yellow teeth, and a crimson robe scrolled with cackling serpents, and he's the high priest Sutu Kalai. The doctor wears the headgear only for observational purposes, but recently he has found his way into every dream. And always as a nemesis, hmm, first as a mad scientist on planet Nymos V. Then as a rogue ex-KGB agent plotting to destroy the world's rainforests, then, ah, but the list goes on and on, does it not? We must get to the bottom of this. Why is it, Joseph, that you fear the therapy so? Because I begin to think, but never dare say, every session is one giant emasculating excoriation of my— And while we're at it, Jessica cuts in, let's figure out why I'm always being kidnapped, tortured, or experimented on, and naked— but again the fire cools just a little as she pictures the way I picture her. It's the only thing that saved our relationship since we started here. I have a problem, see? Don't deny it. And Jessica saw the ad, and you get it. It's an experiment, and technically we're volunteers, though the doctor certainly doesn't accept our feedback as payment. I could be saving up for a motorcycle, or a drum kit, or, hey, an engagement ring. But instead I spend my Saturday mornings here in an Alice-through-the-looking-glass travesty of therapy. 
the kind where I'm asked why I hate coming here and then can't even get a word in edgewise. I mean, first I was abducted by the slime beings of Enor. Then I was trapped in a submarine at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Then I was tortured by the demon queen of the ninth level of hell. Yes, always the victim, the damsel in distress. And naked. Dr. Freundlich wags a finger. Ah, ah, but that is good. It tells us Joseph's problem is not one of physical attraction. Well, then, I'm afraid of what it is. I've been whipped, probed, suffocated, bound, gagged, pinched, pricked. What's next, Joe? When do I get tied to the stupid railroad tracks? I... And you never saved me! I never get further than I once the post-immersion discussion begins. The aliens just probe away to their heart's content, and I know they don't have hearts. The Russian drowns me, the only person who can disable his doomsday device. The demon queen makes me her eternal pleasure slave. And what do you do? You die every time. Oh, I know, it's not your fault. Your blaster jams, your oxygen tank explodes, your sword turns into a freaking wet noodle, and now I'm a human sacrifice in your dreams. But this is good, this is true, Jessica. We must examine why Joseph repeatedly fails in his efforts to save you, and in this real world, please you. You know the feeling of being punched in the stomach? That's me all over, all the time. I'm, or how about this? We get away from his fantasies and let me do the rescuing for once. I'm sure as hell not going to fail. Or not rescuing. Geez, can't we just be having a romantic dinner in Paris or something? We, no, Jessica, the fantasies must be his and the resolution. The problem is his and therefore he is the one who must act, must overcome, if you will. But you have hit on one aspect, these incessant fantasies. We have journeyed to alien worlds from the halls of the pharaohs to the bottom of the ocean. Perhaps we must address this constant denial of the real and examine why reality has been unable to attract Joseph's full attention, hmm? Or, to put it another way, why can't Joe get his head out of his ass? I'm ten, and my parents are arguing at the dinner table over which summer camp to ship me off to. All I can do is watch the interplay like a spectator at Wimbledon, my name served and volleyed between them. No, Jessica, this is not constructive. This problem requires the soft touch. I can't do the soft touch anymore. I can't be the victim or the damsel or the screaming, naked, helpless girl. I'm not the one who's helpless here. I'm perfectly fine. Just the same, the emergence cannot function unless both of you agree to them. If Joseph's are the fantasies we see, then you have accepted his as a dominant vision. Dominant? And yours as a submissive in this relationship. Submissive? Jessica shrieks, springing half off her couch. Surely the next couple waiting in the lobby can hear. Him? Dominant? Look at him! Hey! And me? Submissive? I'll show you submissive. We're leaving! Dr. Freundlich's fingers tap, tap, tap his displeasure, but his voice barely rises above a hiss. Jessica, please sit down. You're being unreasonable. Unreasonable? I'll tell you what's unreasonable. Signing up for a quack's experimental therapy and getting fleeced. That would be quite enough, Miss Tanner, the doctor breaks in icily, planting a bony finger on a red button atop his desk. With an eager hiss, the restraints slither from their dens and jerk Jessica back to the couch. Her rent cuts off with a gasp, her eyes flooding with sudden fear. Me? I'm staring slack-jawed, as I am during most of our sessions, admitted. It's like Dad just reared back and decked Mom across the table. A grin spreads over Dr. Freundlich's narrow skull, the kind of V you expect to see perforated with fangs. You will submit, Miss Tanner, not only to your lover's flaccid fantasies, but to every session you volunteered for. 
Therapy demands the absolute obedience of its subjects. You must embrace the dream. You will embrace it. Jessica's panicked eyes roll to me. Joe? The desperation in her voice snatches me from my shell-shocked stupor and ignites a furnace of rage deep within me. I push myself up and grate. Doctor, you have two seconds to let her go before... His finger dances to another button, snaring me. Uselessly, I struggle against the restraints. One second too many, Joseph. That is the flaw of all your weak, pitiful kind. Always one second too late. Ahem. Now, he leans back, steepling contentedly, we will examine in great detail every facet of your problem. I hope you are quite <laughs> comfortable, for this will take some time. And in a droning, somnolent tone, he begins, in great detail, endless detail, your driest professional lecture bred to your longest parental sermon times ten, times a hundred. We writhe, our fingers aching to plug our ears, our ears crying to be plugged. You must understand it is the very essence of immersion to surrender to the vision, to let every sensation flood the virtual body so that it may heal the physical mind. Joe, Jessica sobs, please. As I squirm, my fingers dip under the couch and brush something beneath. Something impossible. Something of chagrin and steel, honed sharp as the morning sun, breaking the far horizon. An electric jolt passes up my arm as my hand grips a familiar hilt. Dr. Freundlich drones on, heedless of the absurd light flashing in my eyes, mindless of all but his pompous harangue. It is impossible, but it is. Embrace the dream, the doctor says. Jessica weeps. Rage floods every vein. Impossible. Embrace the dream. With a deep-throated roar, I snap the restraints like so much twine, lunging forth with wind aimed at Freundlich's black heart. He screams and rolls back, scrambling to escape the luxurious confines of his chair. One second too late. My blade impales him to the hilt. Embrace that, you son of a bitch, I growl. The doctor tears off his headgear, hurling it to the desk with an infuriated snort. That, he rasps as one would if he'd just had a lung punctured, was uncalled for. I barely hear him. As I lift the gear from my head with shaking hands, I look to Jessica. Trembling, she stares from him to me with eyes so wide they threaten to swallow her head. And when they catch mine, the fire, that rage, it burns. It burns! Doctor, I sputter, as astounded that I'm finally free to speak as I am by the furnace within. That was amazing. I feel I... I feel, do you feel it too, honey? Jessica nods, unable to speak. I'm ready to kiss this man, this genius, this unplugger of all things blocked. How did you ever think to... Uh, I thought you were only an observer. I am. I was, he shouts. It was not I who inserted myself in that... that lacherich delusion. But it wasn't mine. I... I stare at Jessica. A slow, doubtful smile bends her lips. I thought maybe if we were somewhere real, somewhere you felt passionate about, she murmurs with a guilty look at the doctor, some place you really hate, then you'd, well, something. That was completely unreasonable, Dr. Freundlich rails. A total travesty of everything psychiatry stands for a mockery of immersion therapy. I love you, I stammer. I love you. I lurch to my feet and, ignoring Dr. Freundlich's objections, scoop my Jessica up into my arms, swallowing her surprised gasp with my kiss. Dr. Freundlich, I announce, we appreciate your efforts, but will no longer require your services. Jessica reaches around me and pulls the door to, shutting off the doctor's shrieking protests. She giggles in my arms. 
embrace that, you son of a bitch. You liked that, didn't you? She blushes. A little. Again I kiss her, and, clutching her with those mighty thews, we leave the Helmut Freundlich Center for Experimental Immersive Therapy forever. Or at least until the premarital counseling. our story. Hope you enjoyed. Technology sure does seem to shape how we navigate our relationships these days, doesn't it? But not always for the better. The best sign of a healthy relationship just might be no sign of it on Facebook. Texting, Twitter, Facebook. I tell you, sometimes all that stuff can make you feel connected to everyone but the person sitting right next to you, head buried in a smartphone. It's an interesting kind of virtual reality, isn't it? Social networks full of friends and circles, if not occasional cackling hyena men. But real growth in real relationships isn't won in virtual battle. Sometimes you and your partner really need to stab someone. That's the message of this week's story, I think. Let's go now to episode feedback with Escape Pod's assistant editor, Nathan Lee. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 378, Scout, by the appropriately named Bud Sparhawk. If you cast the shattered remnants of your memory back to the days when you were whole, you might recall this as the story of a badly wounded space marine, TM, in a robot body sent to recon the terrible and dangerous enemy threatening to wipe out humanities. Reaction was loosely positive, with the fans appreciating the what-a-twist ending and the tension and stress of the claustrophobic point of view, while the naysayers did not at all appreciate the Shyamalanian shenanigans and felt that, yes, yes, war is hell and we are the real monsters. I wonder what Maru has gotten up to lately. (laughs) Oh, that feisty kitty. Anyway, Max E. to the iPi did some thinking about the primary plot. At first I thought he was a cyborg, a dead flesh replaced with cybernetic enhancements a la Robocop, but that leaves a few details out. Remember, Robocop ate baby food to keep his organics running, but in our story, we only hear mention of batteries. No organic power source, and then at the end, the story begins anew at the same spot, so clearly he was programmed into a fully cybernetic device. Therefore, I concluded that Falcon was the digital imprint of a human being, but if the whole deal is just a person's mind and a robot, why do we need the mostly dead guy? Why not a perfectly healthy and awfully clever and well-trained person who volunteered their mind for this with no danger to themselves? Just copy the mind onto a USB, plug it into a robot turtle, and go. Scumpup growled a response. Hatred was one of the robot turtle's prime motivators. Not just any old hatred, either, but advanced hatred perhaps to get the kind of hatred that makes hurting the enemy more important than anything, including self-preservation, you need imprints from a mind that has suffered in the most ghastly ways at enemy hands. Max pointed out, hatred is a nice motivator, I agree, but I don't think you need it. A scientist who spent his or her entire life seeking new information would jump at the chance to have their brain copied into a robot, and that scientific drive would be a better motivator than hatred. It would be a more focused and driven robot. Scumpup had an answer to that, too. The problem with using the type of scientist you describe is that such folks often have moral qualms about killing and funny ideas about the value of sentient life and what we and the aliens could learn from each other. 
The mission is about gathering information for the purpose of utterly destroying an enemy. Somebody who has a military mindset and a deep-seated personal desire to see the enemy destroyed is a better candidate. As for why the humans would create a weapon that was just as perverse and torturous as the fate the aliens had in store for their captives, Electric Paladin had this thought. Because they hated the enemy. Hatred is a powerful motivator, and it can blind you to easier solutions. They hated the enemy, and they wanted their machine to hate it too, because that made them comfortable, it made them happy. It reflected their hatred in the wider world in a way that was satisfying. That's it for this week. Join us next week when we review the comments for episode 378, Scout, and perhaps this time finally discover their dark secret for the greater good of us all. Thanks, Nathan. All right, folks, that's our show. You know the drill. If you enjoy Escape Pod and all the awesome free science fiction we bring you week to week, consider throwing a donation our way via the donation links on our website, escapepod.org. We really appreciate whatever you can give. Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's produced with a Creative Commons attribution on commercial no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our opening music was used with the permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.com. And our closing quotation this week comes from Doug Copeland, who said, Before machines, the only form of entertainment people really had were relationships. Relationships.